Father God, we are grateful for your mercy and your love when we forget that it's all about you. Today we want to come back to the heart of worship. We want to come back to where we need to be because we know you look much deeper than just the words, but you look into our hearts. May our hearts be for you this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. You can be seated. This morning I asked Bruce, Pastor Bruce, to open up our gathering with a psalm. The psalm that he read was Psalm 24, which opens up with the greatness of God. That all of the world that is here, all the world that we know is a world that he created, and all the creation that was in it is his. We are just stewards of it all. In verse 3 of Psalm 24, King David asks a question. He says these words. He says, Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? Basically saying, which one of us little nobodies can stand and see God, the creator and sustainer of all things? The question then he, that he asks, he then answers in verse 4. He says these words, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, the one who has not appealed or lifted his very soul to what is false and who has not sworn deceitfully. Verse 5 says, He will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of His salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of Him, who seek the face of God of Jacob. Now the great thing is you may have heard this psalm before in the version of a song, one of those 20-year-old songs that Kyle was talking about that Sam would like to play. It's a Chris Tomlin song called Give Us Clean Hands. Maybe you've heard that one. It goes something like this. We bow our hearts. We bend our knees. Oh, Spirit God, come make us humble. We turn our eyes from evil things. Oh, Lord, we cast down our idols. So give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts and let us not lift our souls to another. Oh God, let us be a generation that seeks. Oh God of Jacob. Can we make that our prayer this morning? Let's do that. God, this morning we do bow our hearts and we do bend our knees and we ask that you come make us humble to turn our eyes from the evil things and instead we cast down our idols. We ask you to give us clean hands. We ask you to give us pure hearts and that we do not lift our souls to another. Oh God, let us be a generation that seeks your face. We pray that in your name. Amen. The psalm we read this morning is more than just words to help Chris Tomlin write another golden hit. It also is the backdrop for what Jesus says in our sixth beatitude this morning, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. It says these words, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. As with all the others, this beatitude fits sequentially with the others. Those who have come to see their sinful state for what it is, they are poor in spirit. They realize they are spiritually bankrupt. They have mourned over their sins and been brought to humility of recognizing their own inability to do anything about it. And they have been, as a result, given mercy. They hunger and they thirst for righteousness of God and they are filled. And this brings us to salvation. As salvation comes, which means sins were washed away, they have been made 
pure in heart. As we try and understand this morning what God is trying to tell us, what Jesus is trying to tell us as he is speaking this Sermon on the Mount, we have several things we need to look at. Some questions that we need to ask as we dive a little deeper. The first thing we need to look at is cultural context. And as we look at that cultural context, it'll lead us into the questions of what is the heart? What is purity? And what is this blessing of seeing God? These are the things we're going to look at this morning, but we need to remember as we look at the Bible that it was written to a group of people. We get the benefit of seeing it 2,000 years later, but just like we did with Revelation, we have to take it in the cultural context. As Jesus is teaching, he is teaching to a group of people, Israelites, who are under severe political oppression while under the rule of the Roman government. But not only were they under severe political oppression, they were also, as I would believe, under severe spiritual and religious persecution and oppression from even the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees were teaching that you had to, they adapted the law of Moses, that you had to do certain things and follow the law in a perfect way in order to be saved. We said it last week. I'm not sure if you remember, we said the truth about the law is that it can't help us. It can give us guidelines. That's what the Ten Commandments were. You realize that God did not give the Ten Commandments to the Israelites on day one. It was well into their journey that he gave it to them for guidelines, for guardrails to keep them safe. It can also, that law, condemn us by showing us where we fall short. The one thing it cannot do is it cannot redeem us. It cannot redeem us. It cannot keep us saved. It cannot save us. That is the truth about the law. But there's something else we need to see as we look at this cultural context. There's a truth about people. That truth about people is they want to see God. People want to see God. They want to see God in the end. They want to go to heaven. They want eternal life. So as we look at this idea of eternal life and wanting eternal life, I mean, think about this for just a second. How many of you have gone to a funeral and they said, man, that dude, he's in hell. I've never gone to a funeral and never done one. You know what they always say? Every single time, no matter who that guy is or who that woman is that's inside that casket, he's probably in a better place. They always say it because we want to be in heaven. That is the desire of our hearts. As a matter of fact, we talked about Luke chapter 10 last week where that lawyer questioned Jesus. What was the question that he asked Jesus? What must I do to do what? Inherit eternal life. Luke chapter 10. And then you jump to Luke chapter 18. You know what? He runs into a rich young ruler. The rich young ruler asks them the exact same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? We want to see God. We want to see in the end. We want to know what I must do to measure up. How good is good enough? I mean, how many times have you ever shared the gospel before? And hopefully at least once. But how many times have you ever shared the gospel before and you ask the question, well, what do you think it takes to get you into heaven? Generally is, I'm a good person. Who determines what a good person is? Who's the one that sets the scale for a good person? It's us, isn't it? We compare ourselves to somebody else in order to be considered a good person. You know what? I can always find somebody who's worse than me. I can, if I ever want to feel better, hang out with bad people. If I ever want to feel skinnier, hang out with people that are bigger than me. If I ever want to feel smarter, hang out with people that are dumber than me. It's just how we base ourselves. We try and use our own scales, but that doesn't work for God. 
See, the question in culture then is still the same question we ask today. How can I see God? But really the question is, is why? Why do we want to see that? And I began to think about it this way. If you take just a minute and you go back to the very beginning, verse 1 of the entire Bible. When we go back to the very beginning, I think we see it. See, verse 1 of the, very, of the entire Bible says that God created. God created. He spoke a word and then it happened. And it happened for days on end there. And as we begin to look at the last real next part of his creation, there's one that he doesn't just speak a word and it happens. It's when he comes to man. He says about man, let us create man in our image according to our likeness. And then in chapter 2 says, then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and the man became a living thing. Do you realize what took place right there? God formed us, formed man, formed Adam out of the dust of the earth. But he wasn't a living creature yet. He wasn't a living creature yet. God got face to face with his creation and he breathed the breath of life or he breathed the spirit of life into his nostrils. Imagine Adam coming to life. What is the first thing he sees with his first breath? The face of God. He is face to face with God. I think we all want that. That was imprinted on our hearts from that very moment. But guess what happened? Sin entered the world. Temptation came in. Adam and Eve fell. And as they fell, sin came in and separated us from that face of God. Separated us from Him. We cannot see His face in our sinful condition. That's why Jesus came. To restore a right relationship to live the perfect life, to die the substitutionary death, to defeat death and raise again. What did Jesus do? He gave us the opportunity to see God face to face one day. Well, how is it possible? Go back to Psalm 24. Go back to our beatitude, number six. The only people who can see God face to face are those who are pure in heart. They will have the blessing of seeing God. The only ones who will meet God's standards are the ones who have Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ gave us that opportunity. Really, I see this beatitude as the key beatitude. And you might say, well, how is it the key beatitude if it's number six? Why wouldn't you just start with it if it's the key one? Because we have to build ourselves up to the pinnacle. We have to build ourselves up. We've already gone through it, but I'll toss it out there again. You start in verse 3 of poor in spirit, recognizing you're spiritually bankrupt. You mourn over your condition. You are meek and humble because of that condition. You hand the reins over to God because you know you can't do it on your own. And then you hunger and thirst for righteousness. As you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you are granted mercy by God, which then in turn makes us pure in heart. And we receive the righteousness that God requires. That perfection that he requires. The crazy thing that is flipped, if I can use our title of this sermon series, that is flipped from the world's thinking. I mean, even the world today thinks that somehow we can try to be good enough. The Pharisees of that day said, you have to follow the law in this certain way. They thought it was enough to maintain some sort of external purity and not worry so much about the heart. Have external religion. And we'll talk more about that here shortly. But here's the thing. As Jesus says these words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, he shreds 
that way of thinking. And he says, the only ones who ever see God are the pure at heart. But how? Jesus. The beauty of it all is that Jesus makes us pure in heart. He gives us a new heart. As a matter of fact, if you go back to the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, says these words, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. While the prophet here was talking to the people of Israel, it's no less true for us today. It's no less true for us today. At the moment of our conversion, God literally rips out our heart of stone, our hardened heart, and he gives us a new heart. And you know what that heart's for? Him. That is a heart for him, to see him. And that is the pinnacle. That's the pinnacle. And as we're going to see over the next couple of weeks, guess what it leads to? Being pure in heart leads to then becoming peacemakers. By the way, we're doing some dress up next week with some superheroes, so I want to see you guys all next week all dressed up. Pure in heart leads us then not just to being peacemakers, but also, as it says in verse 10, to be persecuted. Verse 11 says, pure in heart leads to those who will be insulted, persecuted, and against all kinds of evil will be falsely spoken about them. Then you jump to verse 13 as we kick off the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. The pure in heart are the ones who are the ones who are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. That Sermon on the Mount continues to follow. So all of it flows from being pure in heart. See, it's not about external change. It's not about trying to be good enough. It is about having a new heart that is given to us by Jesus Christ, which leads to us this question. What does it even mean when it says heart? What is the heart that is talked about here in our verse and talked about throughout the Old Testament and talked about throughout the New Testament? What is this heart? And the quick answer is this. The heart is who you are. The heart is the whole of who you are. It's the center of your thoughts. It's the center of your emotions. It's the center of your spirit. I love how John Piper puts it when he says this. The heart is what you are in the secrecy of your thought and feeling when nobody knows but God. And what you are at the invisible root matters as much to God as what you are at the visible branch. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, you guys probably know this verse or have heard it before. Samuel is considering David's older brother to be the one that he should anoint as king and God tells him something very specific. It's this. Do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees for the humans see what is visible but the Lord sees the heart. It's that whole idea of coming back to the heart of worship. God's going to see past our external attempts to show off and instead he's going to see what the heart of is it behind it. In the Old Testament you're going to find multiple commands to serve the Lord with our whole heart and without divided loyalty. And we're told to seek him with all our heart. And seek him with all of our being. And again, we see those same things in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, later into our Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will tell us this in Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In Matthew 12, Jesus says the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. In Matthew 15, he says these words. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And he continues in that chapter by saying this, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, 
false witness and slander. These are the things that defile a man. These are the things that defile us. That's what comes from our heart. And guess what I've seen in all of this, and maybe you've heard it. The heart is very important to Jesus. Your heart is incredibly important to Jesus. That's why he came. That's why he gave up his life for your heart. What we are in the deep, hidden recesses of our lives, that's what he cares about. Jesus didn't come in the world just because we had some bad habits that needed to be broken. He came into the world because we had a heart that needed to be purified. It was full of deceitfulness. That's right. Full of deceitfulness. It was gross. The hearts that we had before Jesus are disgusting. Remember, that's why we talk about in the very first one, becoming poor in spirit. We see what our hearts really are, that we can't do it on our own. As a matter of fact, if you check out the book of Jeremiah, you've probably heard this before as well, but Jeremiah says this about the heart. Now, if I was a weatherman, I'd come up here and I'd circle some things here, but it says here, the heart is more deceitful than anything else. Anything else. And incurable. We can't do it on our own. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? See, as we look, not only do we see the heart as the center of our being, but the center of our being is naturally wicked. We are naturally wicked from birth. We're born in this, this idea of leaning towards sin, and in our fallen state, we cannot know him. We cannot see him. And if we're going to get to know him, if we're going to get to see him, there has to be a huge change at our core. There has to be a huge change on the inside. Why? Because as a sinner, in the condition that I am naturally, before Jesus, it is totally unacceptable to God. Totally unfit for his kingdom, no matter how religious I become, no matter how giving I think I can be, no matter how kind, no matter how moral, no matter how humanly good I am, until I have a clean heart, I will not see God. That is the truth of the matter. God requires perfection. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, also part of the Sermon on the Mount we'll get into. He requires holiness, separated. He requires purity. Guess what we are before Jesus? None of the above. We are none of the above. So when we look at purity, what does that even mean? What does it mean, purity? Basically, the definition is free from impurity. Free from impurity. But the Greek word goes a little bit deeper for us, right? The Greek word actually says this. We're clean, blameless, and unstained from guilt. That is purity. The Greek word also can be used to specifically refer to a couple of things that we actually see Jesus talk about and um, some other guys like Malachi and John the Baptist talk about when it says to be purified by fire or to be pruned. John the Baptist actually told people that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Talk about this purity in Matthew chapter 3. Malachi speaks of the Messiah being like a refiner's fire in Malachi chapter 3. Jesus refers to believers being branches. Branches unto himself because he is the vine. And for a vine to produce fruit, it has to be pruned. And those who are truly pure then can be declared innocent. As we are pruned, the work of Jesus is cutting things away and we are being sanctified and we are being refined in his fire by and by his pruning i'm not sure if you guys do this with your bushes rose bushes regular bushes peach trees any of that kind of stuff like that but when we cut things back they tend to grow out just so much fuller 
and more beautiful. My goats and my dogs have naturally pruned my bushes and my trees, and they've eaten all of my peaches. However, the great thing is, is that they just get bigger and fuller because the cutting back that is taking place. So as we see that, we have to remember that's what God is doing. He is purifying us. So what does it mean in the end if you put those two things together, the heart and purity, if you put those things together, what does it look like? What does it look like to have a pure heart or to be pure in heart? There's an old dead guy, as my friend Bob would say, old dead guy by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. He was a Danish philosopher and theologian, and he wrote a book called Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. Basically, he got it from David in Psalm 24. A pure heart has nothing to do with falsehood. It's only about the truth. It's painstakingly truthful and free from deceitfulness. That is what he was saying. What is deceit, though? What is that deceit that we're free from? Deceit is what we do when we will two things. When we want two things, not just one. You say one thing, but inside you're after another. That's the idea of two masters that Jesus talks about. And what's he say? We can't serve two masters. That is impurity of the heart. Purity of the heart is to will one thing. That one thing, Psalm 24, verse 6, seek the face of God or seek the face of God of Jacob. That's what we want. As we begin to look at it, James goes a little bit deeper into it for us. James is a very practical book. If you've never read it, it's five chapters long. I would suggest sitting down and reading this week. Read a chapter a day, Monday through Friday. Very practical and, and life application is right there. But I want you to see what he talks about as he talks about this idea of purity. In James chapter 4, verse 8, it says this, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Did you see it? Psalm 24 has a reference to clean hands and pure hearts. James 4, 8 has the same thing. As we prepare to draw near to God or as we prepare to ascend the mountain of the Lord as it talks about in Psalm 24, we have to be clean. And he says, who are the people that need to be cleansed? Those who are what? Double-minded. Those who are after two different things. The ones who will two different things. As a matter of fact, you see it more clear just a couple of verses before in James chapter 4, verse 4. He says, you adulterous people. All know what adultery is, right? Kids, ask your parents afterwards. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility or warfare towards God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. So the double-minded of verse 8 is the people who have their heart torn between the world and between God. Like a husband who has a wife and a girlfriend. That's not okay. But yet that's what we do to God. Purity of heart, on the other hand, is to will one thing. And namely, that is to focus on God and God alone. Double-mindedness, unfortunately, is where too many people who call, them, call themselves Christians, that's what they said. They sit in this double-mindedness. They've received what we might call positional purity in Christ or imputed purity in righteousness. But the practical purity or living it out is lacking. Living out that purity in our lives is missing. We might even find ourselves with the appearance of purity on the outside but really dead on the inside. 
something that Jesus actually calls the Pharisees out for when he calls them whitewashed tombs. It's called this, or it, it, all that thinking is caused by this double-minded mentality that I try to appease God's will and my will at the same time. What's the Lord's Prayer? Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come, not mine. But we have this fight. We know what's right. We know what God says. But then that age-old question comes up. Did God really say? And like Adam and Eve, they went, oh, should question that. We do the same thing. And when that question comes up, we begin to compromise. And guess what happens when we compromise? It leads to corruption. Corrupted in our souls, corrupted in our, the, our minds, the very depth of us all. I could start rolling off all kinds of examples just by talking about Washington, D.C. I could do it on Wall Street. I could do it on Main Street. But even more so, I can do it in the church. The double-mindedness that is there, that we try to be friends with the world. We try to make people like us by trying to be like them. Unfortunately, right now, there's little difference between the church and the world, the ones who believe in Jesus and the ones who believe in themselves. There's little different there and it's a heart issue it's not just some behavior issue because it's deeper than the external a lot of times we try and do things that change the behavior but we miss the heart we have to look at the heart now I'm going to say something right here that might upset some of you just going to give you that precursor right now if it does we can have a civil conversation later about it but I'm going to say this right here right now I'm incredibly pro-life I'm incredibly pro-life, and I'm not ashamed of that fact at all. I, I probably don't even have to say it. All you have to do is look outside and see my giant 12-passenger van that is full of children. My quiver is full, and, and I'm excited about that. I'm thankful that the court system overturned Roe v. Wade and made it to where the states had the opportunity to make their own decisions. I pray that our state, sooner than later, will make the right decision. I, I pray for that. And I've said it once and I'll say it again. There is no law, though, that can redeem us. Even with the overturn of Roe v. Wade, banning abortions will not change people's hearts or minds about Jesus. It will not change people's hearts or minds about the church, about what is right, and any of those things. Decisions might change some behavior, but it will not change a heart. As a matter of fact, I have good friends who are believers who actually disagreed was the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe. They thought it would actually be a stain on the church and hurt our chances for reaching Christ. I've heard multiple large church leaders say these words, don't celebrate it, you'll just be rubbing salt in the wound. I have a response to that that I'll keep to myself. But I will also respond is something that I can share with you. Twofold. One, the church has a lot of work to do. The church has a lot of work to do. I truly believe the church did not do a good job before Roe v. Wade was, inter, uh, was overturned in introducing lost people to Jesus. See, it's a hard issue. How do you get to the place where you want to kill a child? It's a hard issue. It's not a behavior issue. There's a lot of hate and anger for those who had abortions and those who would even consider it. So the church pushed those people away. And when you push people away, they have to go somewhere, and guess where they went? To the ones who were speaking to them, to the Planned Parenthoods of the world, who 
I'm just going to tell you, have been feeding lies to people for generations. They, they say over and over again that they're about women's health. But that is not true. They're about women's money. I'm just going to tell you that flat out. Because if they were about women's health, they would tell women about the after effects after having an abortion. About how mental issues, about how eating disorders, about how suicidal thoughts and suicide all double and triple after an abortion. Did you know that a woman who has an abortion is three times more likely than a woman who does not to c- commit suicide? And a teen is ten times more likely. Nobody talks about that. Nobody talks about the after effect and the guilt that comes with it because all they care about is you paid, you get your service, you get out. Where's the church though? That is where the church has dropped the ball. It's coming alongside women who are considering it and coming along women who come alongside of women who have done it and say, we love you. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He died for your sins prior. He died for your sins now and he died for your sins that are to come. Where is the church? We have a lot of work still to do. And we need to step up and we need to be supporting things like CareNet Pregnancy Centers over here. The the pro-life pregnancy centers that will help women make an informed decision to let them know they're loved by Jesus and not believe all the lies that have been shared for generations. The second thing is this. We need to stop trying to dance around the truth in order to not offend somebody. Now we need to tell the truth in love, but we still need to tell the truth. Too often we leave the truth out and we just go with the love part. And love is great, but without the truth, it doesn't help change the heart. Christians need to stop being double-minded and stop being friends with the world because friendship with the world is warfare on God. And again, being pure in heart will lead to that next two beatitudes. We become peacemakers. Not peacekeepers, by the way, peacemakers makers and being persecuted for righteousness sake we will talk more about that in the next couple of weeks but i'm sure you've already seen it just by looking at the news but here's a problem the church again is trying to serve two masters you know what jesus says you can't do that you can't do that we think that somehow we're the ones that can work the system though We're the ones that can skirt around what Jesus says, but I'll I'll tell you, compromise happens, and that compromise again leads to corruption. We must remember what Jesus says. Love the Lord your God with what? Oh, you guys know that verse. What was it again? All your heart. That's right. You know what all is? I think I've said this every time I ever say this verse. All means all, not part, not the half that you want to give to him because the other half is going to whatever thing you're worshiping, that divide. He says, you cannot be divided. That would be impurity. Purity of the heart is no deception, no double-mindedness, no divided allegiance. As we walk in purity of the heart, we will experience blessing. And that blessing is seeing God both now and forever. The forever, heaven. Really excited about that. Really excited about this world being done and me being there. But until then, I've got a job to do. God has given me an opportunity to breathe again today. And as I do, I need to be breathing the breath of Him. And I look forward to that. But you know, 
Sometimes we th- look at this verse and we say, well, we'll see God. And we think it's physical. So it's just the end. No, it's also now. The physical part is part of it, but he's also talking about seeing by understanding, by perception, and by discernment of God's will and his way and his heart. That sight is what we're looking for now. And that sight will grow as we walk in purity with him and towards him. When he is our all, we will see things differently. When he is our all, we will most certainly see things differently. We'll see his hand at work in every circumstance, in every situation in life. We'll see it. If you've been washed in the blood, if you've been made new by him, if you were living your life under his lordship, if you were living with the guidance and filled with the Holy Spirit, you will inevitably see God. But the flip side is true. If you have not been, if you have not come to him poor in spirit, if you have not been brought to mourning the sins in your life, if you have never been humbled to the point of turning over the reins to him, you will not see. It all leads to this. And there's people that are still lost in their sin. And they're walking in darkness. They can't recognize, they can't perceive, and they can't see God, even though they want to. They can't. It's just the truth of the matter. I mean, think about that song, Amazing Grace. You want a really old song, Sam and and, and Kyle. What's it say? I once was lost, but now I'm fine. I once was blind, but now I see. Why do we see? Because we came to Jesus. It's all right there. So here's the big question for you today. Can you see what God is doing? Can you see I will tell you from life experience, it becomes much more clear when we aren't double-minded and trying to serve two masters. Personal experience. What is it in your life that's keeping you from a deeper relationship, a deeper, more intimate relationship with God? What is it that keeps you from coming back to the heart of worship? What is it that keeps you from seeing what God is trying to even show you? This is an attitude towards somebody else. Maybe it's a feeling of pride in yourself. Maybe it's a desire that you have that you keep giving into even though you know that it displeases God. What's the thing that's causing you to question who God is if he really means what he says? What did God really say? We ask that question far too often. See, when we read about salvation in the New Testament, this text, even as we look at it, is talking about being saved from three aspects of our sin. We've been saved from the penalty of our sin. That means we're justified. We're being saved from the power of our sin, which means we're being sanctified. And one day we'll be saved from the presence of our sin. We'll be free from it all. That means we'll be glorified. But the truth is, is we're being sanctified. We struggle. We struggle because God gave us a new heart, but he didn't give us a new mind. He gave us a new heart and our mind is not in line with it yet. But we are challenged in Romans chapter 12 to stop conforming to the patterns of this world and instead be what? Transformed by the renewing of our mind. That is where we need to be. And when we have that renewing of our mind, that last part of Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, then we can discern or we can see what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. As we close and the Spirit of God moves in your heart this morning, What is he saying to you today and what are you going to do about it? A good way to start is praying a prayer. The prayer of David found in Psalm 51, 6 through 13. 
What I'm going to do is I'm going to read it and pray it. So I'd love for you just to, to close your eyes and bow your heart. Even if you want to bend your knee. As we think about what David is saying in this prayer to God, it says this in verse 30 and verse 6. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. God, we just ask you to help us with integrity. That, that, that deepness is within us that nobody else knows, but God, you do to live on the inside as we try to on the outside. Verse 7 says, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. God, that's all we ask. Wash us whiter than snow. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that does just that. If there's anybody in here, Lord, that does not know Jesus, that is walking in this darkness, open their eyes so they can see. Let me hear and hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. God, we just want joy. We want to find it in you. There's so many things in this world we try and find joy in. We want it in you. Verse 9, turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. That's our prayer. That you see us through the blood of Jesus. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You can do it. Don't you tell me that he can't do it. We sang that song over and over again. God, please, clean our hearts. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. We ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to be in us, to guide us, to direct us, and to help us in this walk. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Restore that joy, God. Sometimes we just lose it and we forget why we do what we do. May we have the joy in knowing who we are in you. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. God, use us to evangelize. As you purify us, help us to share the joy of Jesus with others. We pray that all in your name, Lord. Amen.